thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, this is your second time on here. Um, the first one was way back. I think it was episode 31, which is about two years ago. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, a man that needs no introduction. You've been someone who has been very much at the forefront of the bushcraft kind of community over the last uh, decade, if not longer. And one of the things that I really like about what you do is that most of your work is freely accessible and shareable online and i think you're a you're a big kind of proponent of of that sort of side of your of your uh of your work but for people who maybe aren't familiar with your work paul uh, could you give us a little bit of a recap of yourself and maybe just a little bit on kind of maybe you, where you are since we last spoke sure Parik. well thanks very much for having me back again i really appreciate the uh the invite and the the chance to, to come and speak to you guys again and, and maybe share a little bit of what I know with your audience. So thanks for the opportunity. It's always appreciated. Um, yeah, so what have I been up to? It feels like if it is only two years ago, it feels like a lot longer ago. And I guess we've all yeah, had that yeah. kind of couple of years, haven't we, where, you know, we've yeah. been, you know, down in the depths of not knowing where we're going and and what's happening and difficult to plan things, particularly for those of us that, you know, work outdoors and have a have a business that I guess is on on the one end is is kind of at the practical end of tourism in the in the sense that you you know you're organizing groups to do things outdoors, you know, with with bushcraft courses or outdoor trips or what have you. And that's been quite a challenging couple of years. Um but um yeah overall i mean what's been going on i mean I, it'd be very easy to focus on negative parts of covid and i think we're all bored with covid i mean uh, to, to to a large extent you know we kind of want to get past that but it's been challenging but it's been manageable and i think these things make you more resilient i think the one of the good things for me about the past couple of years has been certain points have been useful opportunities to stop and reflect on what's important both in terms of you know personal life but also professional life and you know one quite peculiar upside of the first set of lockdowns really was all of a sudden I had all this free time in my schedule that I you know I was literally literally I had come back from several overseas trips in the first part of 2020 and we were literally gearing up to run courses you know, at the end of March 2020, as we always are, you know, we, we kick off our UK course season, you know, Northern Hemisphere spring is is just getting going. And, you know, it's around Easter time and people have got a bit of, you know, the school holidays often around that time. It's a good time to start running courses. And we were literally, you know, polishing the billy cans off and getting the gear mm -hmm, ready. Mm -hmm. And and then it was like, no, nope, COVID, lockdown, stay at home, right, can't do right. anything. And so all of these courses that we had scheduled, apart from the administrative hell of reorganizing all of that, you know, just in terms of communicating right. <laughs> with customers, full courses, reorganizing, when might we be running, we don't know when we can run stuff and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, and just managing a business through that. But having that time, you know, all of a sudden, you know, week after week that's full of courses is not full. It's like, okay. This is quite a gift if I if I view it that way. You know, it, we often ram ourselves too busy. You know, and we're running from one thing to the next without any time for reflection. And so it was actually quite a nice. You know, the the admin that was added aside, um, it was quite a nice time to 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 sort of spend some time thinking about what's important. And um, 
you know, and having a bit of time to work on other things that perhaps have been on the back burner for quite some time. So that that was, you know, for me, a positive side of things, you know, and I guess you've got to try and see the positive side of things. Um, but I, I literally just remember just wiping those courses out of my Google calendar going, wow, I've never had this amount oh. of free time in my calendar for the past 10 years. <laughs> And was so, it exciting or terrifying? <laughs> no, it was exciting, actually. It was kind of a relief. Right, right. You know, it was like, wow, mm. you know, I should. And and since then, I've ke- I, I have resisted putting as much in my schedule. Um, right. You know, right. because I was like, actually, I've just been cramming and shoehorning too much stuff, trying to saying yes to too many things, trying to please too many th- people all at the same time not always fulfilling mm-hmm. those promises and let's say just but let's just be here's an opportunity to, to to sort of not build from the ground up but just okay what what works and then the other thing for me as well is i i also just decided you know you mentioned my podcast um just before we started recording um I haven't done many podcasts recently and there are a number of reasons for that. But one of the things I did do, and it was a conscious decision, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, just going to step back from, from doing some of these things for a little while. And what's been interesting is seeing what people miss. Um, you know, if you, if you're doing stuff week in, week out and you stop doing it and nobody says, I miss that, then maybe you should right, be doing it. Right. Week. <laughs> no, <laughs> week, I mean, week I, in, week I, out, right. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Paul. I mean, I I remember that there was a, a point where this podcast was kind of on a bit of a hiatus with me kind of moving countries and things. And I honestly didn't realize how many people listened to the show until I started getting Instagram DMs like, "Where? when's the next episode coming out? It's like, oh, oh I, I didn't realize people were waiting for it. Okay, cool. Uh, so it can be a nice a nice kind of encouraging thing as well if, if people are genuinely missing uh, your content for sure. It's it's super interesting to hear about how you now sort of have a, a more positive perspective. Um, I guess most of us didn't necessarily always have a positive perspective over these two years. And I know that roughly a year ago or something like that, this is one of the questions you got to your Ask Paul Kirtley podcast about your have your philosophy changed. And now even one year further down the line and you just like you're talking about not cramming or shoehorning in as many courses and things like that uh, for yourself and spreading yourself thin how sort of have your I guess perspective and and uh, attitude is maybe the wrong word I'm looking for but just perspective on the relationship to being outdoors has it changed now when you sort of everyone was forced to change quite suddenly. Mm, um, good question. I, I think fundamentally my relationship with being outdoors and, and the natural environment hasn't changed. Um, I think perhaps my relationship to being outdoors with other people has perhaps changed. Um mm-hmm. I'm I'm quite a self-sufficient person in that you know I and you know Amanda my partner and I sometimes joke or she jokes that you know I'd be quite happy spending most of my time on my own and <laughs> and I and I probably would um but I think we had a whole period of time where we were forced not to 
spend the time with the people we wanted to spend time with um, or discouraged from that. And I think now that we're able to maybe, you know, well, yeah, we're able to freely associate with who we like out, indoors or outdoors again, I, th I think I appreciate perhaps those social aspects of being outdoors more than I did before. Um, but that's more the human side of it than the nature side of it, you know, and, and I'm quite happy to go and do a wilderness canoe trip on my own for two weeks. It doesn't bother me in terms of the lack of social interaction. That being said, I've not done that since COVID, but you know, I did that Barron's river trip in Canada in 2019, not long before COVID. And I was quite happy to go out and, and, and be on my own in that, in that quite remote setting. And I, I believe I still would, but I think those times around the campfire that I was, you know, subjected to is not the right word, but, you know, <laughs> I was, um, <laughs> I was, uh, you know, fortunate enough to experience on a regular basis because of what I do for a living when they were taken away. I think I've grown to appreciate that more than perhaps I did again, when it's, it's there every week and you almost feel like you want a bit of time to yourself away from other people. I think that enforced separation has made me savor those conversations maybe a little bit more than, than I did before. So that would be another positive. That's, aspect. that's, that's, uh, it sounds like a superhuman answer because I've had the exact same feeling uh, that I would have cho chosen the same words as subjected to, just as, like you did there, to a certain degree, of course. But, <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely changed in how you see being outside with people. Like, we, we have uh, dogs and we, we run dogs in the winter with guests from all over the world here. And... Uh, the first winter was we didn't have that many people and it was super super nice but then again you start realizing how much these tiny interactions around the campfire or tiny interactions where people are really interested in the area that you're in or the dogs and things like that it's like those are small little nuggets of gold that you don't get and you don't appreciate it until you don't have it. Yes, indeed, indeed. And you know, I'm I'm an introvert by nature, and I, I'll probably come up with some cod psychology here. But you know, typically, if you believe what you read about introverts, they find being around other people ultimately draining. You know, in, introverts get their energy from being on their own for periods of time whereas extroverts get their energy from being around other people. Um, and I, 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 I still feel like that, you know, if I've spent a week or two in the woods with a group or, and, and colleagues that I do appreciate having a bit of time to myself, but I also appreciate that time with them more than perhaps I did in the past. And, you know, you can't change your fundamental nature. I, I, you know, you can learn to adapt, but, you know, there's fundamentally, I, I do enjoy being on my own, but that's absolutely true. It's there, there are those nuggets. And, you know, I remember reading a quote, I think it's from, I think it's from Hagakuri, you know, the, the book of the book of book of leaves book of hidden leaves i can't remember what the actual literal translation but you know jap classic japanese samurai text and there's there's it's full of really quotable lines but one of them is you know something like wisdom is 
speaking with other people or wisdom is other being around other people, something like that. And I think you do, you do almost by osmosis pick up um, a certain a better perspective on life by being around people and discussing things and and whatnot. Whereas if you're just in your own little echo chamber all the time, which we have been, you know, and it's only, I think it's only been um, accentuated by what interactions we have had with people are through the, you know, through the tube of, you know, being on Facebook or Twitter or, or what have you, which isn't always the healthiest place anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think for all of those reasons, without over, you know, sort of over speaking on this matter, I think, yeah, just, just those aspects, um, have you know have been appreciated for sure of just getting back out and spending time with people um but also having a bit more space as well around that for sure for sure and i think Mm -hmm. what you mentioned there about obviously we kind of interact through facebook and things and although that isn't the best way to communicate um i think that sort of mediating sort of um i guess it's a bit of a hybrid where people were forced to use Zoom, were forced to use whether you work in an office or whether you work in a, you know, you're maybe working ha- sometimes in the office and sometimes at home now that people have seemed to have been able to actually retain more of a balance than they maybe would have had uh, with their work life kind of situation. Um, but I mean, it's interesting for me to hear you say that because a lot of your content and and I mean you're no stranger to the to the online online platform whether that's through the podcast or your YouTube channel Instagram um you know I think it's interesting that you're one of the first sort of bushcraft figureheads in the community that would wholeheartedly embrace that sort of sharing of knowledge and and in fact I think on your keynote in at the global bushcraft symposium in Canada I think the, the title was I think it was like we need your voice or something something along those lines where you're you're sort of uh encouraging or sort of trying to implore almost other people to uh also share what they know or what they can kind of contribute to the bushcraft community online um Mm -hmm. to the to the kind of mantra of well if you don't like the conversation you know change the subject and and like how do you feel about that now after two years of, of being up on that stage is that something that uh you think still resonates today since since we have been so dependent on our screens to sort of vicariously live outside or maybe get our information well there's there's a lot wrapped up in that part there is there um, is i'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah no 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 it's cool that's cool um i'll do my best to un- unravel it and if i miss address if i miss addressing any of it let, let me know um so first off um i am co-chairing the next Global Bushcraft Symposium, which mm-hmm. is happening this uh, July uh, 2022 in um, in Wales, uh, and that was something that was agreed at the last one. So I definitely think it's a good forum, and it continues to be a good forum. And I'm interested to hear what comes out of that uh, with the with the speakers and demonstrators that we have coming uh, this summer. And in in terms of my talk you're right it was something along the lines of why we need your voice in the wilderness i think that was the title or something yeah. very close to that yeah. uh, and people can find that it, it's on youtube and um, i'll put a link and have a yeah. listen to it yeah thank you um but fundamentally what i was addressing there was a and i'm sorry if i offend anybody here but it's just 
the the way that I see things and certainly saw things at the time. Right. Um, That's one of the reasons your Ask Paul Curtis are so good. Straight to the point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I always get straight to the point, but yeah. Ah, Well, the point is is at the end. Yes. But it's it's, it's to the point. Yes. Yes. I, I I say what I feel like I need to say absolutely and 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 yes I put context around the, the, the punchline um even if the punchline is not palatable to some people um so I I I have long observed this dichotomy um and it isn't this isn't absolute and it's not perfect but what I've noticed and I'm not the only person to have noticed this is that there are many revered is maybe too strong a word but certainly well respected names in bushcraft survival wilderness living skills primitive technology who many of whom are authors of books um some of which are not as well known as they should be that have long been involved in education both in terms of um outdoor education formal education you know graduate level you know, outdoor ed programs and all those sorts of things um, who know a lot about both their subject matter as well as how to share those skills and knowledge with people and how to uh, teach and coach and instruct on all the different modes of knowledge and skill transfer that come with that. Um, And then there's a bunch of people on YouTube, right? (laughs) And Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying there's zero crossover between those two cohorts of people, but I don't feel there's enough of a crossover between those cohorts of Mm. people. Yeah. And I do when when I'm when I'm a bit negative, um, which I can get sometimes, um, I kind of feel like bushcraft, particularly the word bushcraft, it gets or is becoming hijacked um, by a number of different influences that are in some ways contrary to the original meaning of the word, or at least the intention of the people who popularized the word. And um, specifically, I'm thinking of people like Morse Kahansky and Richard Graves. You know, if you look at the first couple of books that had bushcraft in the title you had richard gray's bushcraft book and you had moore's book which was originally northern bushcraft Mm -hmm. and then you had other people like ray mears adopting the word bushcraft when previously he'd used the word in his first two books he'd used the word word survival and the word bushcraft didn't really crop up Um, but then there was there was a shift there was a shift there um so there was the survival handbook, which is the green one with the yellow writing. And then there's the outdoor survival handbook, which is the one that goes through the seasons. Um, and they're both, they're both good books, right? Um, but there wasn't a mention of the word bushcraft really there. Um, certainly not in the title of the books. Um, and so there was a shift towards bushcraft. And when I became interested in it, you know, strongly, there was a certain ethos. It was pre, you know, it wasn't pre-internet, but it was pre um, smartphone. It was certainly pre YouTube and most of the information came through, um, either sort of one-to-one teaching or it came through, uh, books. And, um, there is a certain, 
to be a one-to-one -one teacher for any length of time, you know, if you're teaching courses, you need to live by your reputation and right. you need to not kill people. Right. <laughs> and you need, and you know, you need to, you need to be a responsible individual that has a sustainable business model. And that requires customers coming back and people valuing what you do and getting good word of mouth and all of those things. Right. So there's, it's kind of, if you're rubbish at it or you teach people rubbish, you go out of business fairly quickly. Um, and then also in terms of writing books through a traditional publisher, there's a certain set of um, hoops you need to jump through. And there still is, um, you know, you can't, you know, we live in a world where you can self-publish and there are some very good self-published books out there, but you don't get as much credibility if your first book is self-published. I think you can be an established author and self-published because, you know, you're an established author and an author has, you know, that word is there as part of the word authority for a reason, right? Those two words are, are linked, right? Um, but you, you know, anybody can self-publish a book and write a load of garbage. And um, so in jumping through those hoops, in the past, it, it tended to self-regulate the sources of information, right? Um, whereas now we've got no regulation over the sources of information. And many of the people who are probably the greater authorities in some of the subject matters uh, haven't really adopted some of the more modern media types. And so what you're seeing is this dichotomy between people who, many of whom are older, that's why they have more knowledge. It's a little bit like young people moaning about boomers and rich people, you know, old people have got more money. That's because they've been alive for longer. It's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you put 50p a week into your piggy bank for longer, you have more money. It's just as simple as that, right? The thing that young people have is lots of time, yeah, which old people don't have, right? So that that you can do something with that time. But anyway, the, the point is the, the reason that some of the you know, more respected authorities are the older people is because they've had more time to accrue knowledge. They've had more time to accrue experience, but, uh, you know, they started long before YouTube or, um, any of these modern ways of access, accessing people, um, with your material and for people to access your, you know, your, your information, your material. So we end up in the situation where you don't have many of the most authoritative, um, experts in various subjects doing much on these social platforms. And then you've got a younger audience who've got the time and the energy and the enthusiasm and probably the technical know-how and the willingness to learn something new coming into, onto the scene and through no fault of their own, through sheer enthusiasm, wanting to make material. And so you end up with this mismatch, um, and, and that was one of the things I was trying to address with that talk, which was basically addressing an audience that was not exclusively, but, you know, with a good proportion of people who are either professional instructors or academics or people who spend a good amount of their time, you know, teaching people outdoors, training people who have a lot of experience, encouraging them to share a little bit more of what they know through some of these more modern channels. And, and furthermore, as you said, if you don't like the conversation, change it. <laughs> some of these people are people who, you know, the, the, the negative side, you know, it sounds like I'm slagging off 
YouTubers and, and Instagrammers, and I'm not. What, what I'm trying to say is that you've just got this mismatch of people who are on different platforms. Like you've got more old, experienced people with lots of books out, and you've got more young, in, relatively inexperienced people who are putting material out on, you know, websites and YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there could be a little bit more um, crossover there, perhaps. And I also think some of the young people could do with knowing who some of those authorities are because it's it, it's not always apparent right you know um you know some of the some of the books like you know Moore's book and some of Ray Mears's books and Dave Canterbury's books and you know Cody London perhaps some of these people that are relatively well known and their books are you know stocked in regular bookstores you're going to find them but some of the some of the other books that are well worth reading for anyone that's serious you know, has, you know, not even a serious interest, has more than a passing interest in bushcraft and woodcraft and outdoor skills. Um, some of them are quite hard to get hold of. Um, and, you know, they're been out of print for a long time or there were limited print runs in the first place. And so again, there's this, there's this difficulty in getting hold of good quality information. And that was one of the things that I was encouraging people to try and bridge in that in that talk. And as I say, the, the, the flip side is you've got people in the industry, if, and I hate calling it that um, because it isn't really an industry. It's just a loose amalgamation of people who are doing their own thing. Um, but you've got people in the outdoor you know, world who complain about, oh, this guy on YouTube doing this, that, and the other. I'm like, well, what are you doing on YouTube? Right, well, nothing. Right. I, you know, yeah. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if that's the only choice people have got, you can't blame them for watching it, can you? It's like yeah. you put, and it's exactly, but it's exactly the same attitude as, you know, the person who, you know, the type of person, because we've all had it, the person who puts a negative comment underneath your YouTube video, like, oh, I wouldn't do it like that kind of attitude or this, you know, just the person It's easy to be a critic, right? Which wherever you're starting from, whether you're, you know, the person that's leaving a comment on you on a YouTube video or whether you're the established instructor who can't, you know, doesn't want to condescend to make YouTube videos. It's the same result at the end of the day is that you're not doing anything to contribute in that respect and right, you can't therefore right. really complain about what's there if you're not giving an alternative so mm -hmm. yeah yeah i th i think it's a that's a really really in-depth answer and I, I i totally appreciate what you're saying there i suppose it is that sort of um the the lack of or the the lack of enthusiasm on maybe the older generations to kind of adopt new uh, mediums and yeah, I mean, it happens time and time again. Every every generation has its own thing, doesn't it? And um, unfortunately, like again, like something that you brought up in that in that talk is about you know we're fighting uh, our our competition rather is not necessarily our peers or the other people that are kind of producing work or sharing work because um, you know there's enough kind of people to go around. Just look at some of the the people on YouTube; they've got over a million followers. Some of them quite frankly, I wonder where those million people are. And I'm wondering if I can have about 10,000 of them, that would be fantastic. <laughs> but, um, but if I can't find those people, I'm going to try and produce obviously the most, um, engaging and, and informative and, uh, you know, quality content with substance that I can. And unfortunately the competition is Netflix. It's, TikTok, it's immediate gratification over sort of maybe some more informative or maybe informative and inf in entertaining um, content. And yeah, you kind of just have to roll with the punches in that way, right? You got to make your stuff fun for people to watch and listen to. And 
you know, and, and unless uh, it's interesting to watch, people are going to switch to TikTok instead. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard one to, to roll with and, you know, but it, you know, it's, it's the nature of it kind of, isn't it? Without getting too depressed about no, it. But. I, 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 uh, I, <laughs> I, I understand what you're saying there, Porg. And yeah, to, to your point, Paul, as well, like I, I hundred percent agree with what you're saying there as well. I can see it that it's not just like you said, Borg. You're not you're not fighting for the attention of your peers or or the ones before you or the uh, big names or whatever that often. But you're fighting for attention of majority of people. If you're right. choosing to look at numbers, if numbers sure. are the what matters, that's that's a, a a big distinction to make. But what I what I really liked what you said there, Paul, was that you used the word experienced and inexperienced and this is something that i uh, observe quite a lot and and try to understand where things are coming from before i delve too deep into a subject that x person is sharing for example there's the, the the times that we're in is of course very quick you want to know everything in a heartbeat like there's no there shouldn't be that much time from oh i'm interested in this to i know this that that time has has just gone shorter and shorter and shorter and on social media for example skills hard skills whether they are relevant or not relevant whether they are valuable or not valuable or choose whatever words you want it's not necessarily the point. The point is that it is something easy to digest and easy to learn because experience is really, really hard to share through social media. And that is a very, it's a very interesting perspective of, of uh, what's valuable to outdoors people and what people look up to. Is it the person that knows, I don't know, 500 different pot hangers and 35 different ways of making fires? Or is it a person that has done a big solo canoe trip down a river in Canada? One of those things are much easier to portray on social media than the other. And that is an is a interesting sort of narrative to, to work with in where the value lies. That's an interesting point, Jeremiah. And... Um... Yeah, it, it, it is hard to, I mean, it's, it's even hard if, if we're just talking, if we're just talking about YouTube, you know, which is allows a longer form set of videos. Like I think it's almost impossible. Like I've stopped bothering with video on Facebook. I, I just, it just makes no sense to me and the upload quality is terrible. And anyway, that's a different matter. But the point is like YouTube, you can put a two hour video on YouTube if you want. Right. It doesn't have to be short form. Although when I first started making a few YouTube videos years ago, and I freely admit I didn't fully utilize YouTube, I kind of started quite a long time ago and I never really, I saw it as a way of driving traffic elsewhere. You know, it's like almost like an advert for other things, um, which in retrospect was a mistake. But anyway, back in the day, the the received wisdom was, make things short 
and then it kind of went longer and then people said short now it's gone longer again these these things come and go but the point is i think you can make long form content as long as it's engaging as long as it's and i think it, you used the word porig it has to be entertaining and i think that's one of the things about youtube it's it's hard to teach on youtube it needs to be it's hard to make educational content harder now than it used to be certainly i think you have to educate through entertainment on um on youtube and i think my observation is that the the outdoors channels that do best on youtube are ones that a non-outdoors person can watch and still enjoy um, and i think that's why those channels do really well um, because they've got their core audience of people who are perhaps more interested in the skill sets they're applying. And then you've also got the person who are just happy to watch it in the same way as they'll, you know, mm, just experiential. A, yeah. And that a national geographic, you know, documentary about, right, right. you know, wolf cubs or something, you know, they're just happy mm -hmm. to watch something that's, you know, vaguely about nature and transports them to a different spot, even if they've got no interest in developing the skills themselves, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, I think it's it, it it's it seems to be it seems to be the case. Um, in terms of in in terms of getting experience across, then yeah, it's difficult because the the other the, the problem is with with something like YouTube. Even if you make a a really good video and people watch it, there's only a certain amount that you can get in there, and even if you subscribe to somebody's channel like i'm subscribed to all manner of youtube channels and i rarely see their stuff like i, I it, it's just like oh, oh yeah didn't i subscribe to that person oh yeah and you have to go through your list and find them because the stuff that gets put up in the sidebar isn't necessarily even things that you want to see right and so the difficulty you have as, as a content creator on youtube um, and I'm speaking like some YouTube expert. I'm not, but the, you know, I do have a I do have a YouTube channel with some you know, the reasonable number of subscribers, and I sorely neglect putting anything up on a regular basis. Um, and the 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 difficulty is maintaining a narrative from one video to the next, right? So, and 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 even for those videos to be shown or suggested to an audience in any semblance of a sensible order is extremely difficult. So, in terms of sequentially helping somebody up a learning curve, it's extremely mm. difficult to do it on that platform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not the right platform for it. No, yeah. you're right. You're right. And it kind of ties ties into another question I had, which was it's it, in some ways it kind of ties in to what you're talking about there about how. Uh, people kind of want the kind of the short answer more often than not, rather than the actual going into the detail. And and it, it reminds me of something that you spoke about. Um, I, who you were speaking to the that canoeist um, American guy. Sorry, I can't remember his name now. It's it's gone out of my head. Um, but he was, he, was, was saying, he from the US? Do you mean um, yes. Cliff Jacobson? Cliff Jacobson. Yes. It would either yes. have been Cliff yes. Jacobson or Kevin Callan, probably. Yeah, it was Cliff, and and right. and what you were talk, talking about was the when you had put up a video about uh, your kind of layering system with your clothes and why you would choose to put ventile over, you know, a fleece and things like that, and you know, rather than and and the videos kind of basically discusses the principles of layering and and why you've made those choices, um, and then the comments rather than somebody actually going away and figuring out what would work best for their environment or their sort of. Uh, 
experience or whatever. They're kind of just wanting the brand or the name, make and model of the exact one that you're wearing. Um, and I wonder, is that because somebody just doesn't want to do the research for themselves? Or is that something that we're conditioned to do from a very young age, which is, you know, advertising has always been that way where you want to be wearing the the t-shirt that your favorite sports star or actor or whatever is wearing. And I'd wonder where the kind of crossover there is with the likes of, let's say, Instagram and the entertainment side of things. Are people just following people that look cool or are they actually trying to learn from the person who has the most knowledge in that, in that space, you know? I know there's a quite a few questions in there. Well, I have you've, a tendency you've, to do that. I'm sorry. It, you've done it again, Parag. You've kind of. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it's cool. <laughs> but I'm not I even sure I answered the previous question as well as I should have done. I think there's a whole. <laughs> you asked me about my use of so of my use of these platforms early on, and right, I didn't even right. answer that. But no, um, that's fine. That's fine. Th- there's an answer somewhere. In yes, there. yes. So the, the 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 straight the straight answer f- with my use of you know social media and Facebook and YouTube and whatnot initially was because it was free right it's like i'm starting a business i don't want to pay for advertising how do i get to people well there's this new thing called facebook and there's this thing called youtube that's been running for a couple of years and you know this is back in 2010 right so it's like oh and there's these things called blogs are quite popular maybe i'll start with <laughs> right, right. as well you know and <laughs> um they seem very passe now, don't they? Blogs. Very. It's a funny word, isn't it? Two thousand and ten. Yeah. Um, well, you notice I've subtly removed yeah. the word from my website okay. now. It just says Paul Kirtley. Right, 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 right. <laughs> it doesn't say Paul Kirtley's blog anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, that's right. But um, yeah, in terms of in terms of that video, yes. I mean, I was trying to share, use examples, but share principles. Right. Exactly. Of what I found worked for my environment, um, my type of environment, and not even share one set of principles, but, you know, share a range of different combinations of clothing, types of clothing that I found worked well. And you're absolutely right. There are a number of comments there, which was, oh, I just Googled that and you can't buy it anymore. And I've just Googled that and that company doesn't exist anymore. And it's like, yeah, but there are, there are others around, right? You know, um, and it's trying to teach people those principles. It's a little bit like, you know, that old saying, you know, if you, if you give a man a fish that you, they can eat for a meal, if you teach them to fish, they, you know, they can feed themselves. Right. And it's the same, it's the same idea is if you teach people principles, then they can go and work stuff out for themselves. You're, it's actually more enabling, um, you know, that they're able, it might be a little harder to get up the learning curve, but they're able to draw for themselves rather than joining the dots as it were, because you put the dots there. And so that's what I always try and do with the teaching beyond the very, very basics. It's okay, right. I'm going to give you some options here. I'm going to give you some tools in the toolbox. And that video was no different, but I think particularly with equipment, people just want, not everyone. Okay. So again, I'll play kind of cod psychologist here. I think with some people it's possibly laziness, um, I think with other people, it's intentional. So it's just like, this guy knows what he's doing. I trust him. I just want to know what he uses and I'll use the same because he's got the experience <laughs> right, right, right. and they recognize your experience and they're like, okay, I just, I'm just going to shortcut all that pain. I'm going to get the thing I know he knows that works and I'll know it works. And I think that's fine. And I think that's flattering. Um, but equally, 
if I know my audience, and this is the thing to to remember as well, is you know, I get people replying to articles that I write or videos that I make or even podcasts that I might put out, and people say, well, this, this, and this. And they're clearly writing from the perspective, the blinkered perspective of being where they are. And because they think, particularly people in the UK and Ireland and Western Europe, they think because I'm in that environment, I'm only addressing that environment. And so my audience is, you know, particularly with articles and videos and podcasts and my online courses, my my audiences worldwide. You know, I've got people on my online courses in Australia. I've got people in Japan, people all over Europe, people in Canada and the States. And what I, my perspective is to try and give value to all of those people. So if I'm going to share particular brands of equipment that are only available in North America, or only available in the UK, or only available in Australia, that's not useful to anybody in other places, right? Whereas if I can share principles of, okay, you need, you know, get a breathable shell, get a fiber pile jacket, get a merino base layer, then they can go to their local MEC, REI, um, Cotswolds, um, Intersport, or, um, you know, whatever, whatever territory they're in and go and find an equivalent that works for them, right? And that's, that's what you try and do with people. And that's why it's important to teach principles in those things, I think. But you're absolutely right. Some people just want to shortcut that and they get frustrated. And with other people, some other people, I think it's a lack of confidence to to, to, to make their own decisions. Um, so you've got some people who intentionally just want to shortcut, their, you know, short on time, long on money. I'll just do what Paul does, save me a load of hassle. And then you've got other people who are lacking in confidence to make the decision for themselves, even if you give them the tools to do so. Yeah. Right. No, that's an interesting distinction. And it's a, it's definitely there's, giving there's people the There's not necessarily any their, answer uh, either. There's no clear yes yeah, or no to any of the questions of why it is, why it is this way and why is it not this way. But sort of going, going away from the... Um, Going away from the uh, social media aspect of, of bushcraft and the outdoors and things like that, there's a, a conversation that you had or interview that you had with Lisa Fenton a few years ago now, and it's one of these interviews that I keep coming back to every now and then when I sort of want to check myself against, uh, now I'm going back to social media anyway, check myself against what I see on social media just to sort of see what other perspectives are there out there? Because there's not that much talk about the perspectives on what bushcraft is. And she, she has, of course, done the probably most extensive research to date. And she's talking about bushcraft, as I understood it, being uh, a traveling knowledge. And this is something that I, I uh, wonder over every now and then is, I'm doing air quotes here, is modern bushcraft sort of, losing that origin of traveling knowledge since we as humans right now we are very stuck in our cities or homes and we want to practice certain skills on the weekend maybe but we might not use uh, utilizing them in an actual travel somewhere so are we sort of losing a little bit of the um, connection to the origin of these skills and are we just upholding uh, 
what's it called? Like um, mechanical knowledge of, of X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. rather than natural mm-hmm. knowledge of these things. Okay. Um, I will try and loop back to answering the question. I just realized I didn't finish answering the previous one, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, on the, on the social media side, it's like, that's why influencers are so influential because people will just buy what they're using. Right. Um, and I think I don't have a problem with that. My frustration with the influencer stuff is that people don't um, always, uh, they're not always straight up about what's going on in terms of product placement. Like, exactly. Totally different exactly. Th- scheme, right? Totally different field. Um, one of the things in my spare time that I did during the first lockdown is that I decided after many years of wanting to take up the guitar again, I had guitar lessons when I was a teenager and gave it up because I was more interested in BMXs and being in the woods and um, not so interested in classical guitar lessons. And But for years and years and years, I wanted an electric guitar and I was like stuck at home. I was like, screw it. I'm going to order an electric guitar and a little practice amp. And I did, and I'm still thoroughly enjoying it two years later. And that was another positive that came out of that. Just, um, But the point is, one of my perspectives on social media is now viewing a new world to me um, right. which is, you know, guitars and guitar tuition and gear placement and all of that stuff that goes on on YouTube and Instagram sponsored ads, but seeing it in a different subject area. Right. And I watched a video the other day and they were talking about a particular piece of equipment and they were raving on about it. And they were saying, oh yeah, this isn't sponsored by that, by the way. And then, but they'd sent them this 1100 pound piece of equipment to test right and it's like and it's like this isn't sponsored but they didn't so then they were, one of them said to them oh you know dave how much does this cost oh i'm not sure and it's like oh well, how much would they get? and it's like yeah you didn't buy it so it, it's like right, right. and it, it's like people are not yeah. even honest with themselves it's like it's sponsored they've yeah. just sent you an 1100 piece of 1100 pound piece of kit to test Right, right. And they're placing it on your channel, right? That is a sponsored, you know, it's sponsored, totally, right? You know, totally. so they're not paying you cash. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. I see the same, and I always did see it, but I'm just saying it, 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 there's, it was just so, it would just made me giggle. But you see it a lot in in our world as well, right? You know, that people get yeah. sent equipment. Um, you also get people who buy equipment to make it look like they're sponsored. So they get sponsors, you know, um, it's just a whole layering of dishonesty going on with some of these channels. Right. Um, and yeah. And then you've got people who, the one thing I wish with the influencer side is that everyone charged the companies what they should be charging them. Particularly like I know the channels that have got big followings, they get their, they, they will extract their pound of flesh from the from the company, right? But there's a lot of medium-sized channels that are just happy to get some free gear, right? They probably don't even work in outdoor instruction. The Instagram channel is probably their hobby. You've got Mora saying, oh, I'll send you some free knives. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And it's just like, but it devalues the whole, they're getting access to that audience for cheap. You know, those companies are rubbing their hands um, and people are not getting paid proper advertising fees for what they're doing. And they're not being honest about it being advertising. And that also 
distorts the whole field, right? About what's important, about what people are actually using out of choice rather than it being sent to them by the companies that have got money to send them that stuff to them and all of those sorts of things. So um, going back to, to, to the, the question about Lisa and her research, yes, there's a big distortion in what bushcraft means um, because of all of this stuff that gets pumped down channels that has got nothing to do with bushcraft. It's got everything to do with equipment. And again, some of the people that have some of these channels have not a huge amount of skill. And so the default position is to talk about equipment. It's easy to talk about equipment. It's hard to talk about skill sets they don't have. It's even harder to talk about experience they don't have, right? As, as we've already talked about. So in terms of creating content, gear is very, very easy. Um, and so, yeah, when you actually look into the history of bushcraft, um, as Lisa has done and other people have done as well, but Lisa drew on a lot of that work, um, there's lots of intersections of how we get to our modern conception of bushcraft, but some of it was definitely about journeying and it was about journeying in environments that were unfamiliar. Um, and it was about people coming to an environment and to a certain extent learning from local people, often indigenous people, and integrating those skill sets into what they were already doing. And, you know, popular, you can see popular expressions of that with, um, you know, even, you know, the race to the poles, for example, um, you know, and I, we don't really have the space to have the discussion, but if you just look at, say, for example, Scott's approach to getting to the South Pole versus Amundsen's approach to getting to the South Pole, right? One of them took a lot more influence from native ways of traveling in cold environments and the other one didn't. And they followed more of a British naval tradition um, that was somewhat dogmatic, right? Um, that isn't the whole story, but it's just interesting to look at the approaches of people who had contact with First Nations and how they integrated that. And that, if you look at the history of successful expeditioning, particularly in a certain era, you know, when you had, I get a lot, I guess, a lot of colonialism as well. I mean, that was sort of a we're now having a very strong revision of how we view those periods of time. Um, you see still in that era, people going to Africa, you know, Western Europeans going to Africa, going to North America, um, going to South America, um, but having to adapt. Um, and those adaptations, some of them taking up into an expeditionary tool set that could be applied in other places and then being taught to others. Is there a, for lack of a better term, are we are we sometimes for the um, uh, for, from a uh, I don't even know what that word is in English, uh, looking at it with a little bit too rose-colored glasses, I guess, on what we perceive people were doing in terms of skills way back, that we are not necessarily adapting it to the modern sense of what I'm doing air quotes again, what bushcraft could be. Of course, there's, you should have uh, a huge respect for 
indigenous knowledge and knowledge that's been sort of passed on through generations and things like that. But is there is there a balance where we have to sort of step into the future, if you will, in also bushcraft knowledge to get further? That's a good question. Um, I can think of a number of ways of answering that. But um, one, one area which, which I think, so the first thing to say with the indigenous knowledge, I think in terms of the bushcraft side of things, um, it was certain what was extracted was purely practical. It seems, you know, that most of what was taken was practical. And I think a lot of the cultural aspects and the spiritual aspects were not taken with that. And that has a knock-on consequence in terms of, relationship with with nature or relationship with the nature um and i think bushcraft then is a as a, a sort of toolbox of movable skills that can be transplanted from one environment to another needs to have its own set of ethics and its own set of um ways of relating to nature because it hasn't transplanted the culture that those practical skills came from um and so yes i think we should be asking those questions about you know what does it mean how does it relate to our day-to-day -day lives how does it relate to our relationship with with nature i think those are all valid questions and i think they probably always should have been within the context of what we're talking about the skill sets that we're talking about um even so i think the a lot of the practical knowledge it absolutely has to sit on top of a knowledge of nature. And I think this is one of the things that we struggle with as, a, as you know, most people who were listening to this podcast are probably in the first world. They're probably in the developed world because they have a smartphone, they have an internet connection um, and they have the leisure time to listen to this and they have the leisure time to go and enjoy outdoor life. Um, whereas someone who's um, living on a, in a much more precarious state with a very low income on a global scale without, you know, clean running water is probably not wondering about how they're going to spend their next camping week um, in, in, or what knife they should buy, right? So um, a lot of the people who are listening to this will be largely urbanized. 80% plus of the developed world live in urban or suburban environments. I know it's it's a it's a bit less in 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 Norway and Sweden and Finland, but largely um, we live in quite densely populated countries with large cities, large urban sprawl, um, even towns in relatively rural areas. You know, quite large, quite well developed, connected with roads, electricity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So most people live a fairly urban or suburban life they live in a relatively warm house etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's a conscious decision to go out and make use of any of these skills really for most people and um the difficulty though is if you're living most of your life you know most people they're working in an office or they're working from home they're in front of a computer etc cetera, etc cetera, even if they're working in a factory or a shop or their day-to-day -day relationship with nature is fairly limited unless they're going and walking the dog or they're making a conscious decision to go outside and, and, and have a relationship with nature. And so you can completely grow up without much knowledge of what any of the trees or plants or birds are. 
And, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in quite a rural area and my parents were interested in nature as well as gardening. And I had a, a reasonably good start with plants and animals and, and things. But, you know, I have so many students who they, they can't, they don't know what a wren call sounds like or a blue tit or a, the alarm call of a, of a blackbird or what, an, you know, an owl sounds like or because they've never experienced it really. And if they have, they've never disassociated that particular call from any of the others. So with a lot of people, when you're starting to get them to have a more nuanced relationship with nature, you're starting from a very low base. If you can't recognize many trees, if you really have no clue about any of the little green plants that are growing on the forest floor and you can't really differentiate between any of them, never mind start to identify what, what they are, you've got quite a steep learning curve. But that's often what we're working with when we're teaching people and when they decide to to come and learn bushcraft, they're they're really starting from quite a low base. And that's not their fault. It's just the 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 situation that they that society has put them in, they've been born into, right? And um, and so it it's really difficult though to it's really really difficult to build much of a knowledge of bushcraft without starting to build a knowledge of of nature because you know beyond you know most wood if it's dry will burn right some better than others and some faster than others and etc cetera, etc cetera. but beyond that you know okay what's what's a better species for roasting some meat over the fire what's a really good species for getting a fast boil for your kettle you know how do you you know yes how you process it and the size that you split it down to etc etc is important but after a while you need to start to be able to differentiate between different species for different jobs even when we're talking about fire right and then there's a whole realm of other more nuanced um knowledge there in terms of uses of trees and plants and um, before you even start to get into you know understanding you know and using um the animals that are out there but you know everyone even if they're vegan has some interest in using uh, the plants and the trees but it requires and fungi of course it requires a lot of knowledge to build on if you don't have a baseline understanding of what those resources even are you have to get past the identification uh, hurdle before you can even get into the usage hurdle and so for for me the real true bushcraft sits on top of a knowledge of nature um you know, it isn't, yes, having a knife, a sharp piece of metal definitely helps. Having a good axe for certain things definitely helps. Um, having the right clothing definitely makes a difference in terms of your comfort and in extremists, also your survivability in certain environments. Um, but fundamentally, if we're talking about bushcraft, um, it really is beyond that, beyond having a few cutting tools and maybe a couple of firelighting gadgets, um, it's about the knowledge of the materials that you can use with those and what you can use your tool to do. And that's, that's not something that you can learn overnight. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one to get a modern society, um, to a point where they can practically apply things. But that said, um, there are many, many basic things that people can learn relatively quickly that, make a big difference to their outdoor life and and those are the things that we try and teach people first you know there are there are certain species which occur very widely they're easy to recognize they're super useful 
you know, bir birches, for example, the birch tree, right? You know, and there are multiple different species of birch around the Northern Hemisphere, but they all pretty much have the same usages, at least the basic usages. You can make canoes out of some and not others, but in terms of fire lighting and using the sap and saponins being in the leaves and small twigs being good for kindling and bark being good for small containers or fire lighting, et cetera, et cetera, you can treat them all the same and they're easy to differentiate from other species. So they're, think they're good ones to know first um, because people are going to come across them regularly and they can make easy use of them. It's not a lot of processing required. They can get direct benefits from from learning that and learning the usage of that of those trees there are other things that are more localized or more specialist or require more skill but you start with the big blocks and you can fill in the gaps around it um and that for me i think the the argument that we're starting to have and we'll probably continue to have then is well, isn't it destructive to teach people those things? You know, if you're chopping trees down and setting fire to them and, you know, shouldn't we just leave them alone and shouldn't we be hiking into the wilderness with our, you know, just let's just take our gear with us. Let's not touch anything. And I think some places that are very sensitive or require um, special management or a very unique environments absolutely um some places that get a lot of footfall certain national parks there are certain things that we shouldn't be doing in those places because of the pressures on a relatively small area but fundamentally i don't think the skill sets that we teach are damaging because they're skill sets that predate the industrial revolution they're skill sets that largely predate um farming and you could argue that farming and the industrial revolution have done much more damage than anything we could do as ever do as bushcrafters the, the question is numbers of people right in relatively small spaces of area of, of you know national parks and and popular areas that's where the question of ethics really starts to come but i think fundamentally if you teach people the value of natural resources and give them direct hands-on experience with using them, they will value those resources and the environment that they sit within much more strongly than if they go in in a total bubble without any interaction with the environment. And a very simple example you may have heard me say before, but it, it, it stands up, is that I can have a, a group of students come on a, a day-long course, just a day, or a weekend course and they're all relatively urban people they don't know a huge amount about uh, bushcraft or survival skills or foraging or any of these things that they want to learn about and we can go and do a walk in the woods we can do a bit of fire lighting we can go for a walk in the woods and we can start to introduce them to some of the trees and the plants and how to identify and differentiate them and particularly when you start talking about some of the forest floor plants and some of the plants that you get on the margins of fields and hedgerows and by streams and whatnot. And you start going, well, this is, this is a, you know, this is edible. This is a really good salad plant. This is good for stomach upsets. This one here, um, you know, it's, it's good to, to, to squish up and put on a, on a, on a bite or a sting. This one's good for cuts and wounds. It's got anti-inflammatory and antibacterial properties. All of a sudden they go from walking on just random plants to minding where they step because they're like, oh, well, that's a medicine, that's a food, that's, you know, and, and that happens within the space of an afternoon, people, because you're showing the value of it to them. And, you know, don't forget, we grow up, you know, what do we do at school when we play sports? We go out and we run around on the green stuff. 
Right? We are taught from a young age that it's absolutely fine just to go around and obliterate the green stuff that's around us. It's absolutely fine. And you've got to, you've got to actually at first realize that that's what we've been educated to do. You know, you go to the park on a sunny day, people are sat on the grass, but it's not just grass. There's other stuff there as well. Same on the sports fields. You know, we, we're just taught from an early age. And even in the parks where it says, keep off the grass, people are on the grass, right? Because, you know, it's just what we've been taught to do. So I find it really telling that when you actually start pointing out the individual plants and they stop seeing just a bunch of green stuff, which they're almost just, you know, it's, they're just zoning out. It's just green stuff. I'm putting my feet on it just the same as I always do. When you actually start going, okay, actually, no, this is hedge wound work. This is ground ivy. This is wood sorrel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is, this is broadleaf plantain. Da, 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 da. This is what it can do. This is why it's valuable. Then they start being much more careful about where they put their feet. And so that to me is a real tangible example of teaching people how to use those resources in the environment makes them value it and care for it much more than they would do otherwise. So, and that's one of the things we can do through bushcraft. But one of the things that caught my attention there, uh, Paul, is your um, sort of distinction between uh, sort of, you know, manipulating the environment around you as opposed to like, just like, um, I suppose, passively tread, treading over, passing through it. And one of the things that I've heard you mention before is, is almost a, it's one of the things that distinguishes bushcraft from, let's say hikers or camping, um, is that sort of, uh, interaction with the environment and the ability to manipulate the things around you, be that a piece of wood to make shelter, be that, a, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and it's funny because maybe you've noticed this in the, in kind of the Northern countries, but every time I've been in Sweden and Finland and, and, and Denmark and things, it, it's, I, I mean, I love the Finns and the Swedes and the Danes and everything, but there, there's a certain sort of, um, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, a confidence thing or an overconfidence thing, but they have this thing where they go, Oh, the rest of the world calls it bushcraft. We just call it camping here in the North. And, um, while it's funny to hear that it's actually, I think not true at all, because what I've, what I've realized is that when people do kind of grow up in natural environments, like they do up here in the North compared to maybe Ireland or the UK is they have less of a, of a, a sort of a considered, uh, interaction with it the way that we might have, particularly as adults who've chosen to become, you know, knowledgeable in bushcraft or, or sort of, uh, identification and things like that. And because of that, I think that, uh, actually sometimes people like us, maybe that aren't from these areas that do want to like sort of manipulate their, our environments around us are actually more in tune with it than maybe, um, the hikers or the, you know, the Danish hikers or the Swedish sort of, uh, people who, I mean, no offense, Jeremias, I mean, but, you know, people like Jeremias who live in it day in, day out, you know. Um, but I think that's a nice distinction. And it's something that I've been thinking about is because the, the idea of what is bushcraft, I've never been satisfied with an answer because I've never been able to actually really clearly identify what it is. But something like that, I felt kind of starts to make sense to me. It's it's funny that you say that, Porig. You just brought that up because that, that was one of the tangents and, and uh, threads that I, that I uh, sort of wanted to unravel a little bit from from uh, what Paul was talking about before. And I 100% agree, and you and I have been talking about this before, Porig, that like, 
fine. I can, I'm born and raised here in, in uh, absolute north of Sweden. A lot of the people that I know, that I grew up with, that still live here, they might be experienced to, to try and find the, the correct words to use here. Experienced and skilled outdoorsmen and women but they might not have the knowledge of, uh, or an in-depth knowledge. They might be good enough paddlers. They might be good enough fishermen. They might be good enough hunters. And, and this idea that, you know, bushcraft, we call it camping. It's something that I sort of, I laugh at it a little bit, but it, it is just like you're saying, Porg. It, it's a, it's sort of missing the point, I think. Like 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 we've been talking about. Like I think that if we would have, let's say, ten of Paul students come over here, and we would walk around here, I would think that most of them would probably be able to ID things more than I would. So it it is it is a it is a completely different perspective of, as well. It's a completely different perspective of of what's valuable when you grow up into it and speaking from like a a land knowledge perspective someone that takes the time to study this on the weekends or take a professional route like uh, you Paul you did probably has more knowledge I think this is an important word in, in, in this case has more knowledge than maybe experience or specific skills in handling a snowmobile handling a whatever name name whatever you want in winter or or very specific uh, things that can happen in the northern part of, of Sweden for example and it's a yeah it's it's a, it's, it's it's a super interesting sort of diving into what the word might mean and what it might not mean and what it might entail. And, and yeah, that's a whole rabbit hole in itself. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, and it, but you see that even within those cultures, like, you know, you get the old Sami guy driving around on the snow machine on these old skidoo with a ski strapped to the side and you get the young guy riding around without the skis. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's a relative level of experience even within those local cultures right and and what people view mm-hmm. as important um and uh you know the old guy probably knows how long it takes to walk back from where he's going <laughs> and maybe the young guy doesn't because he's always done it on a snow machine right 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 but um and i guess that that's the, that's one of the interesting things within this whole umbrella of of bushcraft and i think that even if I said uh, I, I, I was done with it, I'm still going back to this this social media thing where all of these tiny little nuances are, when it comes to experience, they are in, close to impossible to actually portray in a fair way or in a good way over, hey, this is how you, I don't know, change a v-belt on a snowmobile or this is how you fill up a snowmobile or this is how uh, you put on a bandana and a hat on in the correct way like it, it's 
Right. There's, the, the, a, there's the, a world the, of, of nuance within within like yeah, the and, lifestyle. And, and, and of there's course. and there's so much experience that is so play uh, specific to your backyard. Right. As but then well. it co- but then it comes back to, I suppose, again, kind of tapping into what we were talking about earlier about somebody who um I mean, at what point do you let's want to share that that sort of experience with someone or want to sort of teach for want of a better word, that experience with someone. Um and then I suppose the, again the distinction, and I, and I believe Paul, again, this is something that you've kind of talked about in the past, is this distinction between uh, documentation versus sort of educating. Um, and I think documenting that sort of world that you live in is a lot can can probably tap into those things a little easier than trying to specifically educate in those every single little nuance of that lifestyle. Um, so when is when are you, when are you good enough to? be qualified i suppose to accurately or sort of uh share these things you know uh-huh. um so i think the, the 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 swedes and the finns and the and the norwegians probably like to think that 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 comment about oh that's just camping is is their joke but i hear that joke a lot in other places as well <laughs> right 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 um so i've heard that in canada i've heard that in australia and mm-hmm. I'm like oh yeah, I used to go camping, and it's, it, <laughs> and there's a there's a number of reasons why that comment comes about, right? One is one is yeah, a lot of the things that some people talk about as bushcraft are what some people do growing up as camping, you know, fishing and hiking and camping out in the bush, um, and again, you know, we'll, we'll swing back to the social media stuff. There's a lot of material out there that is under the banner of, of bushcraft you know it's someone someone puts the, it under that banner and it really is camping with a fire you know a lot of a lot of the bushcraft material and particularly the stuff that people just like to watch is kind of the slow tv stuff and you know it is really it's just camping with a fire and, and there's nothing wrong with that but it, it's and the fire making may well be part of bushcraft but it isn't the be all and end all, right? And I think so. If someone Googles bushcraft or searches the hashtag bushcraft on Instagram and finds a bunch of people, guys sat looking, you know, wistfully off into the distance under a tarp and next to a fire and these sorts, of, and that's pretty much the imagery they're seeing. It's like, yeah, there's not much more of substance there than than guys and girls camping and being out, maybe doing a bit of fishing and, and having a fire. And it is largely what a lot of people do on their camping trips, right? So there is that, you know, image is portrayed as that. And so I can understand why some people think that that's all it is, because that's often that's all that's portrayed in some of those channels. Like there's, there's one channel, I can't remember whose it is, that it just largely seems to involve him cooking steaks in different ways, but <laughs> <laughs> over the campfire. I know a few of those. Yeah. Or coffee. It's just coffee. Coffee, always coffee. Coffee and steaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is fun. There's yeah. nothing wrong with either of yeah, those things. Right? That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're complaining about. But it's not the yeah, entire- I would I would, lo- I would love to be at that campfire <laughs> if I would serve. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there's nothing negative about that, but it's not the no. entirety of the bushcraft universe, right? You know, making coffee and having a steak. Um, and I think that's part of the issue. I think there's also, and I, and I don't necessarily include, you know, some of the some of the 
the Scandinavians in this um, appreciation. But I also think with with certain people, when they say that about bushcraft is that they don't know what they don't know. Like right. they have no conception even of not knowing. A, it's that Dunning-Kruger. Yeah, it's that Dunning-Kruger thing. And, yeah. you know, I remember going over to Canada and I was giving a talk um, at MEC, which is one of the main outdoor stores in Canada, and giving a talk at MEC in Toronto, and Toronto being one of the largest, you know, population centers in Canada. Um, so myself and Ray Goodwin were giving some evening talks at, at MEC because we were in, in town and somebody had arranged us. And I knew, I was like, they're going to be skeptical, right? You know, and this was this was 10 years ago, right? So I didn't even necessarily have the reputation that I've got now. And it's like, these people are going to be skeptical. What's this limey Brit guy from, you know, England going to be able to teach us, you know, Canadians, Canadians about the Canadian right. bush, right? Right. right. <laughs> So after I explained a little bit about what I did in the UK, I was like, okay, right. I'll give you a quiz on your native plants and what they're useful for, right? And then after I'd educated them on their own native species that were common and widespread in the Ontario, you know, understory, they were interested in what I had to say because I had you know, they were like, oh, yeah, I've been canoeing and camping and shooting and fishing and this, that, and the other for forever. But it's like, yeah, there's a lot about your environment that you don't know. And that's some of that is what I teach. And um, it, it's about, and it wasn't that I wanted to rub their noses in that, but I also, you know, I knew that I knew that they would be skeptical. And you often find that. And so if you can engage them by sharing valuable knowledge with them, then they become interested in what you have to say. And that's what I've that's what I've always tried to do with my you know where I do venture onto social media. Um, I try and use it to amplify, you know, resources that are solid on my website and whatnot, and and allow people to access perhaps some knowledge that they didn't have, or you know, it might be just hard to access, but I can collate it in a way that's easier to consume. Going back to people like you know stuff that's easy to consume, right? Um, so that so there's that, and then going going back to the documentation versus the instruction thing, um, I think you're partly right there, Porig. Um, my one of the reasons why, and I didn't come up with that distinction. It was something that um, I heard some social media uh, marketing guru talk about um, because a lot of people in the broader world they want to. They want to be successful. They want to forge their own path. They see these opportunities, at least these channels that they can do things on, and they don't really know what they can share. But everyone's got their own story, right? Everyone's got their own life and experience. And you don't need to be teaching people to be, and it doesn't, we're not necessarily just talking about bushcraft or outdoor skills here. It's anything right you know everyone's got their own story and people like stories and so if you document things that's in a lot of ways a more particularly if you're a beginner if you if you want if, if you're passionate about i don't know rollerblading right say you're super passionate about rollerblading but you're you've only really ever been on rollerblades once but you really really want to be good at it right you and you want to somehow share your passion for your, you know, your, your, your 
your young passion for rollerblades with the world you just feel like you want to express that the you're not going to be able to do that by um, by teaching people how to rollerblade because you can hardly stand up straight yourself right but what you can do is document your journey in learning right and that's a much more honest approach and probably a more engaging approach than trying to teach and yet we see so many people that are at a very very basic level of understanding in many different areas going on to going on to youtube um in particular um but tiktok now as well i don't i don't look at tiktok i only ever see tiktok stuff if it gets cross posted onto other you know, I, I'm that old dude now that we were talking about before that, like I, I, I experimented with, it sounds like a drug, doesn't it? I experimented with Snapchat. <laughs> I experimented Probably with Snapchat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I experimented with Snapchat about five or six years ago and I couldn't be bothered yeah, with it. It was, it was in college. It was, you yeah, know, you're exactly, old, you know, I didn't know what I was young. I was naive. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a great uh, podcast title, Paul Kirkley. I experimented with Snapchat. No, no more context that's whatsoever. It, that's it. Click, yeah, clickbait. yeah, yeah. Let's go for the clickbait title. Yeah. So the point is, the point is, I'm now that I'm now that old dude that's entrenched in. You know, I've 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 done my time with YouTube and facebook and instagram and twitter i'm 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 not budging you know <laughs> i'm not, I'm not. Right, right. So, I've, I've had enough yeah so the, the, but the point is i think the, the principle still applies you know whether you're doing you know snapchat or tiktok or, or what have you is that um many people's relationship with a subject doesn't have to be teaching yeah and i think particularly bringing it back to our world is that there are some established people who do spend like a lot of my content is about teaching one way or the other. Right. But long before I started doing that, I was teaching, right. I was teaching in person and long before that I was learning and gaining my own experience, both in terms of teaching people, but also in, in terms of my outdoor life. And so things that I share on social media and, you know, I, I include YouTube in that, um, things that I share are based on those many, many years. But if a new person comes to the subject, what I really want them to understand is that that is not the only way you can approach making content. And in fact, it's probably quite a dishonest way for you to make content. If you don't have a lot to share rather than pretending you know, to, to be able to teach something or learning it badly and then go, okay, guys, I'm going to share with you this. Just go, okay, guys, I, I just heard about this. Or I just saw someone else do this. I'm going to give it a go. Here's my first attempt at doing this. Right. Or I just did this. This is what, you know, this is what I did. Or like, I'm going out camping this weekend. I'm going to film it see what we get to, and, and it just becomes more of a documentation. So it doesn't even have to be. So I, I completely agree with what you said, Porig, about documenting, but I don't think it needs to be someone who's even experienced, you know, because it's a very honest way for an inexperienced person to, if they want to make content, that's a whole different discussion about why they might want to, but if they want to make content and they want to docu, if they want to, you know, almost diarize what they're doing, that's a really good way of, of, of sharing and making content and being creative with the content making without setting themselves up as a kind of false 
teacher, if you see what I mean. And so I think there's a space for everyone. As long as you, once you step outside of that, thinking that the content you're making has to somehow be educational or instructional, um, even if it involves practical skills, um, it can just be a, you know, a, a documentary of you doing your thing um, with, you know, failures and everything rolled into that. That's engaging, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And it ties in, I suppose, a little bit to uh, the last episode we had with uh, Jamie Dakota from Hell Bushcraft, which I believe is also one of your students, if I'm not mistaken, Paul. Um, Jamie's done some of my online courses. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot of time for Jamie because he's he's very diligent in his skill acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. He is. And that's and that's kind of almost the opposite of what of the type of person that we're talking with here. So Jamie is super humble and super sort of uh, dedicated to his craft. but we kind of got onto the conversation a little bit about this sort of, uh, it's almost like putting the instructor on a pedestal in the kind of bushcraft community. And for whatever reason, um, and again, forgive me, Paul, because obviously you're amazing at what you do, but for whatever reason, there seems to be this, it seems to be the be all and end all is that if you become the bushcraft instructor, like that's the top limit of like achievement in this sort of field. And obviously that's not the case, you know? Um, and I think, you know, it's actually, it's funny because you were talking about when you started playing guitar recently um, and how it was a really nice feeling that, you know, you were kind of in this new world. It was totally new to you. You were, you were a, a beginner again. Did, and I, did I say it was a nice feeling? <laughs> well, you were saying that it was interesting to see, <laughs> right? Okay. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, maybe putting two and two together. That oh, doesn't make sense, but, but no, 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 but, but, but I suppose the point is that you weren't an expert and you're not an expert. You're starting from the bottom and sort of that energy that you get from not being an expert. I mean, again, I think it's something like people almost forget what it's like to be at the beginning of something. Like you kind of need to like, I find myself, I need to be jumping, not all the time, but I need to be learning new things fairly regularly in order for me to give me a sense of, um, yeah, energy with something new because I, I have a terrible tendency of getting kind of good at something, but never really mastering something. And then I kind of have this guilt where it's like, well, at what point am I sort of allowed to share my knowledge in this because I'm not a expert, so to speak, um, and I think that's really nice, the the documentation sort of perspective that you're putting on it there, that it's okay to be not the best person in, you know, in the world at this thing that I'm talking about, but it's like it's more of a documentation or a journey, I suppose, more than anything else. It's okay to be an outdoor generalist. Not everyone has to be a, a, right. a uh, master at everything. It's, it, it's fine to be quite good at a lot of things and still get by as long as you're actually spending time out in the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it's more useful to be a generalist for most people yeah. um, than being a specialist in any particular area. Um, I, I think, you know, most people, most people want to enjoy their time outdoors. And so having a broad range of skills, you know, you should, you know, some navigational skills, some ability to manage your clothing, some fire lighting skills. You don't have to light fire by friction, you know, just some basic fire lighting skills, you know, um, you know, just, just some basic, you know, be able to cook on a campfire, be able to use a stove, know how to paddle a canoe, drive a snow machine, whatever, you know, just some basic skills and understanding 
what will get you into trouble and avoiding it in those different things um that's much that's that's what most people need right and um and i think as instructors we need to understand that um you know i don't like being called an expert i feel you know i know i've known many people who know much more about certain things than i know um and certainly i knew at the time and there's always people that are more experienced in different areas and i think one of the one of the problems in our world as you say is that bushcraft instructors or survival instructors or what have you get put up on a on a pedestal um the same as you also get these sort of misconceptions that anybody that's been in the military is somehow automatically a survival expert um that's another one that you you hear a lot which sure even the good military guys get irritated about you know yeah and yeah. um you know unless they've spent their time being a survival instructor you know specialist um you know even you know the people who get the most survival training in the military you know so you know and i'm not talking about people who are then instructors i'm talking about people who get the most training um who go through the military survival schools so air crew you know fast jet pilots helicopter pilots general air crew um soldiers who are more likely to find themselves behind enemy lines so special forces etc most of their training time is spent doing something else you know learning mm -hmm. to fly a fighter jet um right. learning Being the main one. <laughs> learning to shoot a range of weapons including right. soviet block weapons as well as your own nato weapons and knowing how to strip them and know and you know understanding demolitions and all of this stuff that they need is the is the bread and butter of their job right um eating pig nuts and you know <laughs> friction fire fishing with a be... fishing with a safety <laughs> pin is not high up their list <laughs> list of priorities in terms of what right, they're going right, to spend right. a lot of their time doing right so um and 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 so yeah if i want to learn how to fire an automatic weapon i'd find a you know a special forces guy if i want to learn how to forage i'm going to go and find the old lady that's going to has been foraging for 70 years right it's um and and it's the same with a lot of skills that there are people who are specialists that you can learn a lot from and i think that's that's important um but i do i get frustrated with this this gen you know i consider myself a generalist right i'm not a specialist in anything there are things that i'm more knowledgeable more knowledgeable about than others um within a generalist skill set but i don't consider myself an expert in everything and i don't even like being called an expert in anything um you know, and I think this is one of the misconceptions that you have is then you have a student. Students just expect you to know everything about everything, you know, and they, they almost get a little bit. I was at, I went to an event in December. Um, it was a scouting event and they asked me there to, to you know, I've supported them in the past and they asked me to go and, and, and speak and um, they wanted me to do a book signing and various other bits and pieces. And it was a, it was a nice, nice time. But. Um, I did a Q&A after I had a little bit of a, a talk and one of them asked me about a comment that I'd made on one of my podcasts, which was when I'd interviewed uh, Teresa Emmerich Camper about tanning, right? And she's been interested in tanning since she was a teenager. She's done her PhD at Exeter on uh, 
archaeological so she's within the within the experimental archaeology department if you like she's done a phd on different tanning techniques and comparing uh, specimens that she prepared to um archaeological specimens to to try and figure out how they were tanned and that's what she did her phd on right she's pretty much an expert in tanning techniques right and a bit of hide working but not much i have to say i don't particularly enjoy it you know it's smelly it's time consuming um it's not really how i like spending my time i'll be honest about that you know um could i know a bit more about it than i do probably yes um and it links back with the journeying skill set as well and i can come back to that but people expect you to know about those things in great depth and um same with flint napping, right? I've done a bit of flint napping. I've done some with John Lord. I've done some with Will Lord. I've done other bits and pieces with other people. I've been around other people that have done it. I understand what's going on. I'm not very good at it because I haven't done very much of it, right? Um, and But yet people are sh- almost shocked when you say, well, actually, you know, so when I did this interview with, with Teresa on my podcast, I was like, you know, I haven't done very much of this. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. And then someone listens to that and they go, Oh, I was really surprised that you didn't know much about that. And it's like, well, sure. <laughs> this is only so many hours in a day. Like- spent their entire <laughs> life since they were a teenager on tanning, right. including doing right. a degree, a master's, a PhD in anthropology, archaeology, experimental archaeology. And then, you know, her PhD, you know, research and thesis, how on earth could I know as much as she did? Of course. About that. Yeah, course. But why don't you know, Paul? Why don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, we have this thing where we're put up on a pedestal, and I, and I that frustrated me even when I even when I worked um, at Woodlaw right? and I worked with Ray Mears, right? And you know, he's a TV personality, um, and but it all becomes about the 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 figurehead, right? So when I started Frontier Bushcraft, I was like. Okay, well, I'm going to have, I will have a presence, but I want Frontier Bushcraft, my company, to be about the team, right? Because it's the team that delivers the programs. You know, I mean, I'm part of the team, but it's the team that delivers the programs, that runs the trips, et cetera. And it shouldn't just be about me. You know, I, I'm about me, if you like. Paul Kirtley is a personal brand, is, you know, Paul Kirtley, but my company is about, the team that delivers the, 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 the values of the company, the standards that we work to, and the team that delivers the courses. Um, but it's so difficult. It's so difficult to get people to see beyond the individuals in our line right. of work. There's just this cult of personality. Right. It's, it's exactly what I was really going to say. It's really difficult to get beyond. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, and and you know everybody from, of course, with Mears, but then also you have Dave Canterbury, and, and you know there's there's a lot of these people where uh, if they have it on their head, people will buy it, you know, and and uh, whether that's a skill set, whether that's a, a belief system, or whether that's a product physically on your head, um, people will buy into it, and yeah, I guess it's it's no different than any other sort of sport or 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 fashion yeah yeah we're just i think we're just as people we're just and it ties back again to like we were talking about earlier about your your choice of clothing and sort of uh the i want the exact buffalo smock number you know whatever uh, fjallraven anorak number three that you have and if i don't have that one then sure you know 
Yeah. Um, That's a yeah. relatively recent occurrence, though, because if I look back at the few photographs that I have, and there aren't many because I had a little, it might have even been a disposable camera, but I had a little 35 millimeter film camera back on the first bushcraft course I did. And I think I took 36 photos the whole week, right? So, because it was one roll of film that I had with me. Um, and they're a bit fuzzy. But if I look back at those photos, it, people are just like, I had a, I had an old purple, it was the end of the 90s, right? So forgive me, it was like a purple fleece <laughs> on. Um, that, that was like the fashionable outdoor color back then, it seems. So I had, but it was a, it was a fleece that I, it was a Kona fleece that I'd got free with my mountain bike that I'd bought, you know, in the mid, oh, nice. in the mid nineties that had like some Pertex up the front and I had, some, I bet that'd be worth something now. Probably. I don't know where it's gone. I don't yeah. know where it's gone. Um, and you know, other people, old camouflage jackets and just, there was none of this kind of people turning up with, and again, there's a frustration here that I will express, you know, people turning up to a course looking like they've just walked out of a Fjallraven showroom or, or what have you. There was, there was none of that. And don't get me wrong. I think, you know, I wear Fjallraven trousers all the time. I think they're, they're good. Um, I do have some concerns about some of their other gear, but, um, not being connected to any brands, I can say what I like about all of these things. Right. And that's the other thing, right. Um, some, some things are good, some things are bad, but, um, the the point is that people used to turn up in you know an old pair of you know hiking boots and some you know military surplus trousers that they dyed black and an old fleece or and a or a woolly jumper and a you know and a pair of cargo pants and and some trainers you know that that's what people used to turn up to 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 a lot of these kind of courses whereas now people turn up and it's like you've spent more on your outfit than you've spent on this course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, never, <laughs> never mind the gear you've got in your rucksack, right? You know, your jacket and your shirt and your trousers and your boots cost more than this course. Yeah. Well, I suppose if, if they bought them specifically for that course, then yeah, that's, that's a strange yeah, thing. But yeah. I guess some people, uh, maybe already have those Not pieces or they've added. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But yeah. so just, just to clarify, I'm talking about someone, you know, you can see that they've just got them out of the packet, right? And okay. They might've right. just bought right. some new things, but what frustrates me about this, look, people can spend their money however they want. I don't have a problem with that. What I'm saying is I wouldn't want people to ever think that that was necessary to, to come on a course, right? Of course, when you go to some environments at certain times of the year, your clothing is critical, right? Um, if you go to where Jeremias is in, in the winter, you need the right clothing. You need the right footwear. You need the right handwear. You need the right headwear, right? Because otherwise it's, it's, it's a risk. It's not just a discomfort thing. It is a risk, you know, you get freezing cold injuries, hypothermia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, there are times when the right clothing is totally critical, but, you know, within the northern temperate, at, you know, 52 to 55 degrees north in the summer months, you can get by with a lot of leeway with some fairly inexpensive, you know, non-technical clothing, particularly if you're in the forest, particularly if you're with fire, if you're being looked after by people, you don't need to turn up with a thousand pounds worth of technical clothing and a rucksack full of very expensive, you know, sleeping equipment. Um, 
to do a 700 pound course, right? With, uh, with sort of, uh, I guess rounding off, we've been talking for about an hour and 40 minutes. Now I realize just getting warmed up. We're just getting warmed up. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) as I said before, there are so many things that I would like to go out on a tangent on and, uh, it might just be a reason for having you on again, Paul, or having a beer or something like that, uh, mm-hmm. if we ever meet up in the future. Mm-hmm. But with this whole social media stuff and, and, and whatnot, it can be, it, it's easy to make fun of, but at the same time, it can be a great inspiration for people to start a journey of going outside, whether they buy you know the full kit and whatnot and and uh, and and uh, you just want to go out and take pictures maybe that is a person that will start to go away from that and explore more and more of their backyard their close by woods the national parks and get a relationship to the land that is very valuable for them as a person, but also very valuable to keep a culture of being connected to the land alive rather than just being a spectator. There are there, There is that chance, even if social media is fun to make fun of, there is still that chance. Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, all of these platforms are neutral, right? They're, they're neutral. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a blank sheet of paper until you put something onto them and so their their ability to do good is 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 powerful and i i would hope that you know my use of some of these platforms has been valuable it certainly allows you to connect with people you know we probably wouldn't be speaking were it not for some of these channels um we we certainly wouldn't be able to host our respective podcasts and i think that's one of the you know there's been this disintermediation so I talked before about, you know, in the past, the only way of getting a book published was to jump through certain hoops and work with a publisher. And that's still a very valid way of, 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 of publishing. Um, but we live in a world now where we can have much more direct access to uh, an audience. And I think that's, I think that's valuable. I think it's very democratic. It's kind of open source. Um, we just need to take some responsibility as to what we put on those platforms, right? And as, as as you say, people can be inspired, they can be educated, they can be encouraged to form healthy relationships um, with the natural world, form a relationship with the natural world, um, go and go and explore. And I think all of those things are all those things are good. Um, but there's a lot of noise out there as well. And I think some of what we've been talking about is the noise, right? You know, there's you know, there's signal and there's noise and, you know, people learn to differentiate between the two over time. And, you know, the more people that can share good quality information, then, then the, you know, that's, that's good for the wider community and good for people that are just starting to learn, you know, and and going back to my example with the, with the guitar playing, you know, I've come to know and trust certain resources and certain people and, not so much the others and you learn that over time right um but i think the extra responsibility that we perhaps have in outdoor instruction is that you know i think it's pretty difficult to you know 
be severely injured or end up hypothermic or hospitalized playing the guitar in your bedroom. I think it's <laughs> it's maybe perhaps a little easier when you're outdoors um, exploring places that you're inexperienced in. And so I think if we can share good quality information. And playing, playing the, the guitar. guitar. And playing the guitar at the same time, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Getting too right. close to the fire with your wooden guitar and setting yourself alight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Paul, it's been such a pleasure to have you on again. And uh, definitely there is scope for a round three uh, if you're up for it at some point. Um, but for now, I'm going to say thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us and, and kind of giving us a couple of hours of your, your evening. And um, where can people go to find your stuff, Paul? Well, the, the hub really is paulkirtley.co.uk and you can mm-hmm. find the, the social medias, etc. from there. My book, online courses, physical courses, they're all linked off there somewhere. And then I'd also encourage people to have a look at the Global Bushcraft Symposium as well um, if they're interested in. We didn't even get to that. No, um, but go and have a look at Global Bushcraft Symposium 2022.com or just search Global Bushcraft Symposium. You'll find it. We've got a ton of great speakers and demonstrators coming, and it's a relatively small event in terms of numbers, um, but it gives you some great access to people um, rubbing shoulders with some great instructors. It is very much a symposium. Um, so it's not like, oh, there's the VIPs, they'll come and do their thing. And it's it's just everyone's at the venue the whole time. You'll end up sitting down for dinner next to me or, you know, Dave Watson or Patrick McGlinchey or uh, Dave Westcott or Johan Schulman or any of these other people are going to be there. It's, it's going to be great. And I'm certainly looking forward to it. And um, if we can see more people there um there are a few tickets left um but they are selling so yeah i don't know when this is due to come out but um yeah please check it out it's it's a great event so yeah for sure i'll i'll be sure to add a link to the ticket sales in this uh, description of this episode as well so if anybody's interested in going to that i believe it's in the uk this year it was in canada the two years previous um if you're interested in flying over, if you're from the UK and you listen to this show, then uh, I very much recommend that uh, from my side. Um, but it's always got it's such a fucking pleasure to talk to you. We we could we could talk for hours, but um, but for now I'm going to say thanks, and I hope you have a good evening. Uh, my pleasure to you too, gents, as well. It's it's been a pleasure to be on. Um, hopefully we. We coursed a route that was vaguely, um, you know, navigable by people following the conversation and it made sense to people listening and um, added some value, I hope. And I look forward to doing it again sometime. If not, email Paul. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Let him answer the question. If you can find my email address. (laughs) All right. Have a good evening, guys. guys. Take care. Take care. Cheers.